Our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, Ben. As Ben mentioned, we are in a series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Paul, two weeks ago, at the end of chapter 1, said something very important. And he said that God's power is at work for all who believe in Christ Jesus. And since that prayer at the end of chapter 1, we've now been looking at different examples of what that means for God's power to be at work towards those who believe in Christ Jesus. First, he said he raised Jesus from the dead, and that is the type of power, the category of power that God has toward us. And then we learned that not only did he raise Christ from the dead, but he raised us from the dead. He raised all those who believe in Jesus from deadness and made them alive. And it was from nothing that they did, but it was his own initiative and by his own mercy and kindness and grace. And now this week, there's another example of God's power toward us who believe. And that is, as Ben mentioned, reconciliation. Reconciliation, you could say, is making enemies friends. And in this passage, reconciliation happens in two directions. And we'll see this. It happens between humanity, in this case particularly, these Gentile Christians. We see reconciliation between them and God through the cross, but we also see a horizontal reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. So there's a sociological reality to what God is doing. And that might surprise you, it might surprise us, that God would be so clear in Ephesians 2 that this gospel, this saving, has vertical realities to it. And while differences are real and should be honored and respected, 
there is a deep propensity towards excluding others who are different than us, not simply noting a distinction. Distinctions are good and right, but to exclude others for the sake of those distinctions is wrong. And so what Paul is pointing to is this exclusion of others that's happening between the Jews and the Gentiles. That's wrong. And he actually goes deeper than that, and we'll get there. But now I want to share, uh, I was reminded this week of a, well, some would call it a a landmark sociological study, but it didn't happen in some major academic journal. It actually happened in 1968 in April in a third grade classroom in Iowa, a town of 800 or so people. Maybe you've heard of it. On April 5th, a student, a third grade boy, came in and threw his backpack on his desk and said, Miss Elliot, they killed the king yesterday. Why'd they kill the king? And of course, he's referring to Martin Luther King Jr. and his assassination. And she took it upon herself in that moment to create an experiment. Now, there's no doubt she would be fired for what she did today, I think. But what she did was she took her classroom and separated them into two groups, arbitrarily saying, this is the brown-eyed group, this is the blue-eyed group. And she put green bands around the arms of the brown-eyed students so that you could see from far away that they were excluded. And she began to teach them one random Monday morning, sat them down, told them about the new arrangement, and taught them blue-eyed students work harder than brown-eyed students. Blue-eyed students score better because they're smarter than brown-eyed students. And she didn't just teach them these arbitrary exclusionary distinctions, right? She also put it into real life. So, for example, socially, she said brown-eyed students get less time at recess. Brown-eyed students get less food at lunch. If blue-eyed students want, they can eat more food at lunch. And what she saw happen in that span of a week, I believe— is brown-eyed students, those who were in the brown-eyed group, they were scoring poorer than they were just days before on the same tests. They were confused when they would raise their hand. They were more timid. But interestingly enough, on the other side, those who were put in the blue-eyed group, they started scoring better than they did just the week before. And so as this week continues, she began to see friends that were so tight the week before. Now we're separated with these arbitrary labels and they begin to fight and make fun of one another. And then on the playground by the end, you see them in separate groups. What she was attempting to do was show all of these students that there is this deep impulse in all of us to exclude others. If you watch the documentary, or it's like a 60 Minutes thing of this for free, you can Google it. They interview these students year, you know, decades later, and they still would say, that changed my life. To understand this deep sense, this deep impulse to exclude others. So Paul is talking about something like that. But in fact, what Paul does is even more helpful. What Paul does is he goes beneath the fact that we all have this impulse to exclude others, and he tells us why. 
he tells us why we have this impulse to exclude others. He points to, yes, external and arbitrary ways that people are alienated from God. But in verse 12, we'll see, he shows us that there is a real alienation that we all feel deeply inside of us. And he shows that this deeper alienation and exclusion that we feel is what drives our tendency to exclude and alienate others. And you know why we exclude and alienate others? Because it makes us feel superior, doesn't it? Don't you alienate others so that you can create a category for yourself to belong in that is better than those who you've excluded? Again, I'm not talking about true distinctions, which should be recognized and honored. Distinctions where people can have equal value but be different. This exclusion, I mean something else by. And so we'll see in this passage, even though it's long and sounds very technical, it breaks into three pretty uh, clear sections. And the first section is in 11 through 13. And what we see in 11 through 13 is a movement from exclusion to embrace. So if you look at here, uh, starting in 12, remember, he's talking to the Gentile Christians in Ephesus. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, there's actually a parallel between last week, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2, and this week, 11 through 22, and it's pretty obvious. In last week, we saw a similar description. Life without Christ in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2 is called deadness. You were dead apart from Christ. Now, verses 11 through 12 in this new section, those apart from Christ are called alienated. And so Paul is continuing with this theme that he started at the beginning of chapter 2, and he's expanding it now. In both cases, you also see what commentators will call a great adversative. Remember last week, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power in the air, all these things. And then he says in verse four, but God. And now he says, you were alienated, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now. Do you see the connection? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who once were excluded from this hope have now been invited in and brought near in Christ. And so what we see here is Paul is writing this letter to Gentile Christians mostly, but the passage points to really two realities of the human condition. First, that we were dead, now that we're alienated, and in both cases, God is the only one who can change this, but God, but now. And it's interesting, if we looked at verse 13, because just so you know, we are Gentiles, okay? It's easy to sort of live in this world where we kind of feel like Christianity is an American thing, right? Okay, salvation comes from the Jews, Jesus said. You see, we're invited into this story. We are part of the nations that the Bible speaks of. And now we're invited into this story we too once were far off. 
from God and his promises. But now in Christ, we've been brought near. We've been brought near to, Christ, to God through Christ. And so I'm just wondering, when I was thinking about this, if I really read verse 13, what would that do to that impulse in me to exclude others even now? Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you, all of you, it's y'all, it's plural, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You and you and you and me, if you trust in Christ, have been brought near. That movement from exclusion to now being embraced, what would that do? What would it do to us if we truly leaned into the fact that God embraces us in Christ? What type of exclusions would you stop making in order to feel worthy, in order to feel lovable? Maybe you see your identity in your productivity and how much you get done. Because you're a hard worker. And then you begin to take that on as, I am a hard worker. I am productive. And then, rather than it being a, a good thing, something that you value, something that you enjoy, now you take it on as an identity, as a thing. And then what happens? You begin to look at other people who don't fit your category of productivity, of hard work, and what have you just done? You have made an exclusion. That's beyond a distinction, isn't it? We can say some people are maybe seem to be more productive and, and we don't have to quite make an exclusion. But if you view yourself as I am productive, I am a hard worker, maybe you're excluding them. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you, you pride yourself on not being that way. And you say, gosh, I enjoy life way more than those people who are constantly striving to achieve, constantly working. Why don't they just slow down and enjoy life? And then you watch them and you all of a sudden have contempt toward them. You see, the moment, that's just a simple example to show us that the moment that you value anything above what God has done for you in Christ, the moment that you value as an identity anything more than the identity that Jesus, that you are given in Jesus, he said saints last week, he says saints again in this passage, in that moment is the same moment that you will exclude others as less than worthy. In that exact moment that you have made two groups or three groups, you view others not in your group as less than worthy. Anytime our sense of self is based on anything we do, okay? Anytime our sense of self is based, last week the language was, anytime we boast in anything that we do, we will begin to show contempt for entire groups of others. That is the inclination that underlies the reality that we saw in that third grade classroom in Iowa in 1968. And when we understand that, Paul gives us eyes to see that we don't merely need instruction. We don't merely need a reformation of character, although both of these things are good. What we need is a savior. You see, we will not be able to eradicate the source of this impulse to create exclusionary realities without being saved 
from what is really making us do this. So, in order for exclusion to lead to embrace in our relationships, right? It's a theological truth. If you're in Christ, you now have been embraced. But in order for exclusion to lead to embrace, enmity must be erased. And that's the second thing we're going to see in verses 14 through 18. Enmity is a synonym for the word hostility in the passage, but you notice hostility does not start with an E. So we're going to say enmity. Let's read 14 through 18. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Not productivity, not lack of productivity, not working hard, not not working hard. Jesus is our peace, who has made us both. Now we're doing something interesting. Who's us? Has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Enmity and hostility are synonyms. You can even use them each other in the definition of the words. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What is enmity? What is hostility? Well, it's when two or more parties are actively opposed to one another. And apparently, you can't simply forgive enmity or hostility like you can forgive sins. You must kill it. It has to be killed. It has to be stopped. It has to be erased. Otherwise, there is active opposition to one another. And if you see in the passage, there is opposition not only between us and God, but God and us. And there's active opposition between two groups of people. You see, over time, God's people, the Jews, had taken markers of distinction, which are important, right? God gives his people markers of distinction. The family of Abraham was to be unique, to be blessed, to be a blessing, to be conduits of God's redemptive plan for the world. But something terrible and interesting happened. God's people, the Jews, it seems, had taken markers of distinction, which are fine, but they had made them markers of exclusion beyond what God had intended. And so we don't often think much about enmity and how much enmity or hostility there was between the Jews and the Gentiles. Listen, there was so much that it was normal for Jews to frequently insult Gentiles, referring to them as dogs. Now think about the greatest racial slurs you can think of today, and it would probably be equal to that. It's interesting, even in Matthew 15, Jesus is doing something else here, He's, he's making a point, but Jesus calls a Gentile woman a dog, and it seems like no one blinks an eye. Now, he comes around, and you see why he did that, to prove a point, okay? But this was normal. There was this, there was this social reality. Jews and Gentiles were at enmity. There was hostility between the two. And it wasn't just a social reality. There were architectural, physical things that reinforced this hostility. One commentator has this great paragraph that I'll, that I'll be picking from in the next 30 seconds to a minute to describe what the, this architectural barrier was like in the temple, right? Because when, when you read temple in the Bible, think presence. 
think presence of God. That's why it's not a good thing when God's presence is not in the temple because it's meant to be there. And so here, Herod builds a temple in Second Temple Judaism. And what you have is you have the temple built on an elevated platform and around it was the court of priests, okay? And then east of this was the court of Israel and east of this was the court of women, okay? So there are three courts, one for the priests, one for the lay men, and one for the lay women of Israel. And they were all on the same elevation as the temple itself. But from this level, one had to go down five steps to a walled platform, okay? And on the other side of that, you went down 14 more steps to another wall, beyond which that was the outer court of the Gentiles. Now, this was a spacious court running right around the temple and the inner court. So it sort of surrounded the, the property. And from any part of the court of the Gentiles, you could look up and view the temple because it was elevated. But you were not allowed to approach it. They were cut off from the presence of God, okay, by, surround, by the surrounding wall. And this surrounding wall was feet thick, thick of stone. And if that was not enough... Periodically, in intervals along the wall, there were warning notices in both Greek and Latin that basically read something like trespassers, not what trespassers will be prosecuted, but it read something like trespassers will be executed. In fact, 150 years ago or so, two Greek notices like this were found. And this is what they said. It's in a museum somewhere in Europe, I can't remember. And this is what the sign reads. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Now, Paul knew something about this. The author of Ephesians. Interestingly, only a handful of years previous to this writing, Paul had almost been lynched by an angry mob of Jews who had taken, because they thought and accused him of taking a Gentile into the temple. Interestingly enough, this Gentile was an Ephesian man named Trophimus. So Paul isn't only speaking metaphorically. He knew that Jesus not just metaphorically or spiritually broke down this wall, but when these Ephesians read this, they knew what he meant. Even the physical barriers meant to keep them out keep them alienated, were broken down. You see, it's clear that the Jewish people had come to go beyond the requirements of being a peculiar people, forgetting that their distinction was for the blessing of others, not the excluding of others, and had in fact even forgotten their calling in the world to be a blessing to the nations. In reality, many Jews had begun to mistake their nearness to God by his action was something that they deserved anyway. They believed over time, oh, our nearness to God is because we are so great. But it's interesting. That's not what Moses said in Deuteronomy. See, in Deuteronomy, what Moses said, the nations would say when they saw Israel, what they should say is, who has a God like this who is so near to his people? You see, it was supposed to be the opposite. They weren't supposed to look at Israel and say, man, look how great they are. They were supposed to look at Israel and say, who has a great God like this 
that would make himself so near to this people. Because they were not a great people. They were a small people. They were a weak people. They were a poor people. And God chose them. But not for themselves. But for the world. You see, what we actually see in this text is that all people, Jews included, need to be reconciled to God by the cross. Look at this in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That was the first part of the passage. But then he says something very interesting. And peace to those who were near. Why? For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. God is making one new humanity. You see, and now we're back to where we started. Our need to exclude or alienate others comes from our deep feeling that we too are worthy of being excluded and alienated. We experience this deep separation, which Paul tells us actually is from God. We see in verse 12 and 18, though, that God has destroyed enmity between himself and all those who trust, or between himself and each other, all those who trust in Christ. So look at verse 14 and we'll see it. Both are mentioned. Verse 14, he says, he, God, has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. That would be horizontally. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. So you see, it goes both ways. Now for us, a community that actually does this, invites others from exclusion to embrace, will not emerge out of merely practicing private spirituality or simply showing up once a week on Sunday mornings here at Florida Hospital Church. It will take us starting by remembering. He says remember twice in this passage. It will take us starting here, remembering what God has done in Christ and letting it move us toward love. And love requires burden-bearing sacrifice. You see, this is complicated. This is a complicated thing, what we're talking about. It doesn't come overnight but it is what God is calling us to. God is calling us to move toward those that we've excluded, even if we didn't even realize it, to move toward them, to embrace them, and it will require, even in Christ as Christians, burden-bearing sacrifice. That is what happens in the body of Christ. You see, in Acts 15, there was this council because they didn't know what to do with all these Jews who were becoming Christians and they weren't keeping the law, and they weren't circumcised. And so Paul and Barnabas and others come to Jerusalem, and James and Peter are there, and they have this conversation, maybe the first church council, and they decide on the issue at hand, which is that they do not need to be circumcised. Gentiles do not need to be circumcised or keep the ceremonial law of Moses. But then they add these interesting, strange requirements at the end. Do you remember this? Just a couple of them. One is they, they shouldn't eat meat, with blood in it, or meat sacrificed to idols. But yet, in Romans 14, Paul deals with that, and he says, there's this weaker brother, stronger brother thing, but of course we know that there are no other gods besides the true God. And then in 1 Corinthians, you see him dealing with this again, 
But in Acts 15, no one has a problem. Paul actually says, no, this makes sense to me that we would require them not to be circumcised, but to take on these other requirements. And here's why that's important. Because they all knew they were putting a burden on the Gentiles. It wasn't for salvation. It was for love. You see, if the Gentiles didn't restrain from eating meat sacrificed to idols or meat with blood in it, they would not be able to come together in table fellowship as Jews and Gentiles. You see, distinction doesn't have to mean exclusion. We respect and honor distinction. We're willing to take on the burden of what it means to love one another. Those who are different than us, those who have different preferences than us, those who have different socioeconomic realities than us, those who have different cultures and skin colors than us, we bear each other's burdens in love. We're both one in the gospel, and yet we work this out lovingly with prayerful discernment. But I'm wondering, how might God right now be calling you to move towards those who are excluded to embrace them? Listen, some of you, many of you, more than you may realize, there's this thing that God is doing at New City, and it's a groundswell beginning this interest in burning passion for foster care and adoption. It is happening, and I want you to know that it's growing, and it's something that God is doing in, in these, this family's heart, and this family's heart, and this family's heart, and it's happening And we need to get you together because you need to encourage one another and you need to see what God's doing in our midst. I'm not doing it. The elders aren't doing it. I mean, well, some of them are actually part of that group. But the point is we're not organizing it. But God is putting in your heart a desire, a burden, a deep longing to move towards those who have been excluded by our society even from no fault of their own and to embrace them and bring them into a loving household and maybe even make them forever a part of your family. God is doing that in our midst, and you need to know that. Maybe he's calling you to pursue your reclusive neighbor who, when you see them, you don't do this. uh, Because it's awkward. But you take on the burden of moving towards exclusion to embrace Some of you, maybe it's you need to learn about serving communities in our city that you don't understand or even fit into. Me too. In fact, this is kind of where I am right now in my own walk in discipleship is paying attention to those neighborhoods that are right next to me that I never drive through because I have no need to drive through. But what if I did? What if I intentionally went through them and prayed for them and listened to them? and asked questions, and was with them, and spent time with them. Who do we need to listen to? Who do we need to learn from? What exclusion do we need to embrace? And remember, we do this because we have been embraced. We do this because we were excluded, and now we've been brought near. And so we have Paul telling us about, in Christ, to these Gentiles, they were excluded from all hope, and he's embraced them. And then enmity was erased between God and humanity and Jews and Gentiles, which, by the way, are the two main theological categories of division. That's been brought together. Okay, that was not a social construct. God made that division. He has now brought that together. He had his purposes. 
And in Christ, he is fulfilling those purposes. And that brings us to the last thing, which is exiles now go to a dwelling place. And this is 19 through 22. So let's read it. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also, you also, you also. It's interesting. I think many people would have heard this letter and thought of a thousand other people that it could be talking to, but they would never think it could be talking to them. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think, yeah, this makes sense for everyone else here, but not me. You also, in him, you also, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, not by your work, not by your presentableness, not by anything, but by the Spirit of God. And so I get the word exiles from verse 19. You are no longer strangers and aliens. If you have a footnote in your Bible, it probably says sojourners, which is exile. You're no longer strangers and aliens. And by the way, also exile started with an E. So I had to use the word exile. You see, in verse 19, we see what's actually happening. In fact, someone pointed out to me this week, a preacher, that these verses offer three metaphors in verses 19 through 22. The first one is, as I said, you move from exiles to citizens. You didn't have a home or you didn't have a country. Now you have a country. But then reading on in verse 19, they didn't just become citizens. They also became members of a household. So you went from citizens with a king to also a household member now with a family and a father. And then you went from that to being a part of this structure of a living building, apparently. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together. So another way to say it is that those in Christ have gone from being godless to having God as king, and then from having God as king to having God as king and father, and then from having God as king and father to being cemented into a community of people that cannot be shaken, that cannot be knocked down because in Christ they've been made one new humanity. But then we go from citizens, exiles to citizens, without a father to a father and a family, then to a building we're cemented to one another and then to a dwelling place for God. It just keeps getting more and more and more intense. You see, God is not only giving us a home in Jesus Christ, he's making us his home. That's what it says right there in verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, this preacher I was listening to went on to point out that these insights won't transform you. What will transform you, what will transform me, is when we see that the very time we are being welcomed in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was being cast out. The only true son was forsaken so that you and I, exiles, strangers and aliens, could be brought into the family as sons and daughters. The only one deserving embrace being released so that we could be embraced. 
And until you and I see Jesus as being sent into the darkness of our deep longing and exile, emptied of his glory and crucified for you and I, and trusting in that sacrifice, we won't be transformed. And we may not even want to trust in that sacrifice until we look at Jesus and we see that Jesus was gladly cast out to bring us back home. And he was cast out to tear down all of our dividing walls of enmity and hostility that we feel like we need to hold on to in order to give ourselves value. He becomes our value so that those who are excluded can become embraced. Listen, we, we don't have to be a community or a people that needs to find inclusion by excluding others. But because we find our embrace in the exclusion of Jesus, we actually can embrace others. So let's remember this and let's strive to be this type of community. Everywhere we live, everywhere we learn, everywhere we work, everywhere we play. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, no doubt, seeing how far short we fall of this reality. We, we recognize that just looking at us as this community, we are far from perfect. We fail in so many ways to reflect this great truth that you have torn down all walls of hostility in Christ. Give us eyes to see those areas where we are seeking in order to make ourselves feel valuable, an exclusive category we can be a part of. Help us see that you are our true value. You are our true rest. You are our true home. And it's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.